calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie. And I'm Arden Walentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist. In this episode, we're talking about NATO. So grab your alliances. And let's get civical. Hello, everyone. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Let's Get Civical. I'm Lizzie Stewart. And I am Arden Walentowski. And it's been a it's been a day. It's been a it's been an overnight. It's been a morning. We are recording on in the afternoon on February the 24th on Thursday. So for those of you who are listening to this in the future, this is the the day of Russia's initial attack, invasion, etc., whatever you want to categorize it, on Ukraine. So you could say things are going on. And it prompted us to um, do this episode. <laughs> uh, sort of an immediate response. We had a totally different episode planned to record today. And very true. I texted Arden and I was like, um... I don't, I think we should hold off for a second on that one and do, <laughs> sure. do something a little bit more responsive to to the, the situation at large. So to be clear, we are not talking about the conflict itself specifically. Oh my God, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I we wouldn't, wouldn't know where to begin unfolding to currently. Begin. And I, yeah, I think whatever we would say about it would, to we would have to re-record in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like literally, I've been updating the notes as this this morning has been unfolding on like oh, wow. things that are helpful to know. 
But we decided to do an episode today about NATO because um, if you are not engaging in any sort of news, you know, you, you may not know about them. But if you are, it's all over the place. And so it seems like a good time to talk about what in God's name is NATO. Yes. An invasion is an excellent time to talk about yeah. an alliance of countries. An alliance, an alliance of countries. It's really interesting. I obviously knew about NATO in sort of a, you know, high level type of way. Yeah. But there are some there's some interesting things about it that um I found in the research. So a lot of notes. So I'm gonna keep our usual bantering to a minimum and let's jump in with the sources for today so i'm going to tell you about today's sources because everything's backwards now russia invades ukraine and lizzie does and lizzie does the, the notes lizzie does the notes i <laughs> look look we have to do what we have to do to get the, the information out it's only when somebody invades antarctica that i will start correct editing correct these episodes and and you know the next invasion arden's going to be editing these episodes and that's that is what it is that's it so today's sources are the the two primary ones. Uh, one is the Office of the Historian. So that's a government website, um, a truly a, a position within the government. The Office of the Historian had a huge long thing on their site about NATO that was very helpful. And then the other main source is, of course, NATO's website itself. Um, what it is saying about itself from the horse's mouth. I'm not here to tell you what you are. You can tell me. And then just a little bit of a couple of a couple of points from a very dear friend of ours, history.com, to just round out some of the notes. So yeah. So I'm gonna kick us off with again, overview, broad strokes, what is NATO? In case again, we're coming to this being like, what in God's name is this acronym that now is just all over the place? NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and today it is the largest peacetime military alliance in the world. NATO's creation was part of a broader effort to serve three purposes, deterring Soviet expansionism, forbidding the revival of nationalist militarism in Europe through a strong North American presence on the continent, and encouraging European political integration. So we're going to talk about more about what led to NATO and how the Soviet Union plays into this, because I know you're all thinking, like, why are we talking about the Soviet Union still? It's gone. But was a huge reason why NATO came to be. And now here we are, once again, looking at Russia, who is the, what's, not the predecessor, but the, what's the one that comes after? The successor. The successor. There, we go. there you go. There you go. Of the USSR, um, the Russian Federation. NATO's purpose is to guarantee the freedom and security of its members through political and military means. And NATO's website defined what political and military means to them. So politically, NATO promotes democratic values and enables members to consult and cooperate on defense and security-related issues to solve problems, build trust, and in the long run, prevent conflict. I, I feel like this is why NATO <laughs> is taking a lot like. None of that says Russia to me. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. In fact, all it of that seems, says um, anti-Russia to me. It, right. Exactly. 
Then militarily, NATO is committed to the peaceful resolution of disputes. If diplomatic efforts fail, it has the military power to undertake crisis management operations. These are carried out under the Collective Defense Clause of NATO's founding treaty, Article 5. And I'll get into what Article 5 is later. It's a big article. There's a couple of big articles, but that's like the one that everybody knows. Then finally, NATO was the first peacetime military alliance the United States entered into outside of the Western Hemisphere. Just a oh, fun fact cool. there. Did not so before know. we were only like, we're staying with the West. Then World War II happens. We're going to talk about how we got to NATO. And the United States was like, you know what? It seems good that we start chatting and protecting each other's globally. Because yeah. now these things span, like, you know, our spheres. Yeah. So. What, how did we get NATO? Who birthed her? How did she get here? Who birthed her? Who's Who her mom? Her? Who's her mommy? The aftermath of World War II, as Lizzie said, saw much of Europe devastated in a way that it is now difficult to envision. Approximately 36.5 million Europeans had died in the conflict, 19 million of them civilians. Refugee camps and rationing dominated daily life. In some areas, infant mortality rates were one in four, which is just crazy. It's brutal. In the German city of Hamburg alone, half a million people were homeless. So just a lot of, a lot of devastation, a lot of displacement, yeah. a lot civilian of civilian devastation, suffering. Just, uh, yeah, I mean, horrible, horrible. It was a world war, and people, people were suffering and. We had no real recompense to get them help. It was just so widespread. Yeah. Yeah. As a result, Secretary of State George Marshall proposed a program of large-scale economic aid to Europe. The resulting European Recovery Program, or the Marshall Plan, which is how I know it, what I know it as, mm -hmm. not only facilitated European economic integration, but promoted the idea of shared interests and cooperation between the United States and Europe. And yes, obviously, obviously. Yeah. And like, yeah, yes. they're like, the, every there's people dying, there's children dying. So the right. United States goes, we should figure something out here. Like, it just feels weird to not engage in any type of aid to these people. Yes. Um, well, and so, also, yeah, it makes like, sense. Let's come up to, with a plan. Right. And it also makes sense just that like, that this plan that like Euro the European countries should somehow unite officially. Right. I mean, obviously they'll each have their own interests, but as a united front, it is much, is it, a, is it, it is a much stronger message. Right. It's more of a deterrent, you right. know? Soviet refusal either to participate in the Marshall plan or to allow its satellite states in Eastern Europe to accept economic assistance helped to reinforce the growing division between East and West in Europe. The USSR didn't want the West to have any involvement no. No. in anything post-World War II. Yeah. They wanted, and, and to this, I mean, that's, you know, you, you'll, there's a lot of pushback against Western influence and that being, you know, cited as one of the causes for them why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah. Is to counteract, you know, aggressions by the West, like helping people who are dying. Mm-hmm. It's very aggressive. Mm -hmm. In addition, communists aided by the Soviet Union were threatening elected governments across Europe. 
In February 1948, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, with covert backing from the Soviet Union, so this is one of those satellites that the USSR had, overthrew the democratically elected government in that country. Then in reaction to the democratic consolidation of West Germany, the Soviets blockaded Allied-controlled West Berlin in a bid to consolidate their hold on the German capital. So they're staging, the, this is why it was a Cold War, they're staging these little incidents and picking smaller mm-hmm. fights in within countries and then in, yeah. you know, with smaller smaller countries and within cities where they feel oh, like they're they all can over get the a stronghold. They got tentacles. Yeah. Attention also focused on elections in Italy as the Communist Party had made significant gains among Italian voters. Events in Germany also caused concern. The occupation and governance of Germany after the war had long been disputed, and in mid-1948, Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin chose to test Western resolve by implementing a blockade against West Berlin, which was then under joint U.S., British, and French control, but surrounded by Soviet-controlled East Germany. So we feel the tension. We feel the tension. They are... The idea of communism is spreading. We're overthrowing governments that are elected, which is never good. And we're also doing blockades. It's a real test of how much can I get away with without, you know, any real retaliation. Yeah. The Berlin crisis brought the United States and the Soviet Union to the brink of conflict, although a massive airlift to resupply the city for the duration of the blockade helped to prevent an outright confrontation. So aid helping the situation, bringing aid Mm -hmm. to help the people. These events caused U.S. officials to grow increasingly wary of the possibility that the countries of Western Europe might deal with their security concerns by negotiating with the Soviets, which they did not want to have happen. No. Big no. no. Mm-mm. To counter this possible turn of events, the Truman administration considered the possibility of forming a European-American alliance that would commit the United States to bolstering the security of Western Europe. Yes. And now here we are. Here we are. Here is the the conversation Truman's like, I think we all need to get together and put some pen to paper and get get some legitimacy behind our alliance and you know, figure out what are what are the rules what we're going to do for each other because this is something that doesn't appear to be going away. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This type of threat, this type of aggression, this type of unrest, etc. So it leads us to the official formation of NATO. As Arden just laid out beautifully, in response to increasing tensions and security concerns, representatives of several countries of Western Europe gathered together to create a military alliance. Great Britain, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg signed the Brussels Treaty in March of 1948. So this is right before the official formation of full-blown NATO. Their treaty provided collective defense. If one of those nations was attacked, the others were bound to help defend it, a sentiment that will be brought into the fold of NATO itself. At the same time, so that's happening in Europe, at the same time, the Truman administration instituted a peacetime draft, increased military spending, 
and called upon the historically isolationist Republican Congress to consider a military alliance with Europe. So they've got the treaty over here in Europe to be like, look, among among ourselves, if one of us, you know, four or five get attacked, we got your back. Truman's like, I think we should be a part of this. I think we should be over there also offering aid. So the discussions between the Western nations concluded on April 4th, 1949, when the foreign ministers of 12 countries in North America and Western Europe gathered in Washington, D.C. to sign the North Atlantic Treaty and form NATO. The original members of NATO consisted of Belgium, Great Britain, Canada, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, and of course, the United States. So those are the OG-12. They're the founding members. It was primarily a security pact. And Article 5, which is the article I mentioned up top, is the big article that stated a military attack against any of the signatories would be considered an attack against them all. I'm going to read the full article in a little bit. The collective defense arrangement only formally applied to attacks against the signatories that occurred in Europe or North America. It did not include conflicts in colonial territories. Just an interesting, like, you know, (laughs) I think thing that they threw in there of like, this is just if like you are invaded. You know, don't start bringing us into like, your territories or your islands or God knows what. Like, this is just for you. We can't get involved in everything. Right. They're, they're saying we're not getting involved in civil wars, which, yes, what? I agree. Which Probably they don't. not a really? good idea. Nope. You're not going to solve a civil war by having somebody no. who has no stake, no interest, but into that situation. Correct. But are you invaded by another country? We will. We Our plan is to come help We got you. you. We got you. When U.S. Secretary of State Dean Atchison put his signature on the document, it reflected an important change in American foreign policy. For the first time since the 1700s, the U.S. had formally tied its security to that of nations in Europe. The continent had served as the flashpoint for both world wars. So, yeah, I mean, our literal entire history up until this point, we had never said to somebody in Europe, hey, if something happens to you, we got you. Like, look how far we've come. Yeah. To think that, like, you know, in 1776, we were going up against the British. And now we're like... And the French. France, you know. Luxembourg. You know, all of you. Anything yeah. happens to you, you're my people. I got you. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And they're doing the same to us. They're like, hey... We'll come to your aid, which they have, and they, they've done in the past. Yeah. So let's talk about the Warsaw Pact, which was the um, Soviet Union, the USSR's response to NATO. Because I can imagine they were not happy. <laughs> they didn't like it. They didn't I love can, it. They didn't you know want what? some more I of kinda it. Figured, I kind of figured they were not yeah. in love with this idea. They were like, what? I mean, it's not. You'll, you'll talk about it. It Great. wasn't like a direct, like, how dare you? But it's. They, they got their ducks in a row and they're like, right. okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. If you want to form an alliance, so will we. So will we. <laughs> so the formation of the Warsaw Pact was, as Lizzie just said, in some ways a response to the creation of NATO, although it did not occur until six years after the Western Alliance came into being. So, okay. They've got, it's a little slow on the uptake, but they're also covering bases. 
Right. It was more directly inspired by the rearming of West Germany and its admission into NATO in 1955, which, again, was close to the territory that they controlled. And so they felt threatened right. by West Germany being admitted to NATO because now that right. territory is directly, directly abuts the territory that they control. Right. And they're very, I mean, and, you know, again, we're not getting too deep into the Ukrainian conflict right now, but it, one of the things that they were, were, was part of Russia's demands to not invade Ukraine was to assure them that Ukraine would never be admitted into NATO. So they really mm. are against, even now, this idea of, to them, NATO is Western influence and right. that being so directly near them and in their business they're like absolutely not right like this shouldn't happen like this isn't i mean and i'm sure that <laughs> that that russia would consider nato involvement in this most recent invasion into ukraine an invasion into a civil war basically right because they consider it their territory they do consider it their ter- territory which is again a whole other mess. A whole other mess, but it's just let's just say Russia would say the sky is red. And I don't mean red because of the communist association. I just mean red oh, like they would yes. be contrarian if it suited yeah. themselves. The US and a number of other NATO members began to advocate making West Germany a part of the alliance and allowing it to form an army under tight restrictions. The Soviets warned that such a provocative action would force them to make new security arrangements in their own sphere of influence, and they were true to their word. West Germany formally joined NATO on May 5th, 1955, and the Warsaw Pact was signed no less than two weeks later on May 14th. So, quick turnaround here. They, yeah. they're, they're preparing for a fight. Joining the USSR in the alliance were Albania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, the German Democratic Republic, which is East Germany, Hungary, Poland, and Romania. So they got their own. They got their own. It's like the sharks and the jets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody's got their, their packs. Mm-hmm. This lineup remained constant until the Cold War ended with the dismantling of all the communist governments in Eastern Europe in, in 1989 and 1990. We're going to take a quick break for a little word from our sponsors. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
now here we are. Here we are at modern day. I mean, a lot happens with NATO in between, especially in the 80s and the 90s. Oh my God, Jesus, but we would be here forever in a day. And I simply do not have enough Uh, coffee. Right. We will talk about a couple of things that they were involved with just to give you an idea of, you know, the types of things that NATO has asserted itself into either diplomatically or actually militarily, because again, they do have a military arm. Um, It's not like the UN, which is solely diplomatic. Mm -hmm. So modern day NATO, the NATO that is currently working long hours today, there are 30 members of NATO. So we started with 12 and 18 countries have since joined NATO uh, since its formation initially. And those additional 18 are, I'm just going to do them in order in which they joined. So Greece and Turkey joined in 1952. Germany or West Germany, but you know now it's all Germany, uh, in 1955. Spain in 1982. The Czech Republic, Hungary, and Poland in 1999. So big jump from their Warsaw Pact days. Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia in 2004. Albania and Croatia in 2009. Montenegro in 2017. And North Macedonia in 2020. So those are the new people on the block. Yeah, it's something that it's not... We'll talk about it in just a second, but it's not like NATO should, there are membership requirements for NATO, but they are always happy to welcome more countries into NATO if they meet the requirements. Well, also, like, there is there is not an insignificant number of countries on the list who were admitted, you know, much later in the 90s, 2000s, right after NATO was formed, that had been on Russia's slash the USSR's mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. that side many a moon ago so like great i know come on come over. over a new leaf come, on, come down. on down we love to have you we love a democracy i know so let's talk about membership so each member nation is represented on the north atlantic council by an ambassador or permanent representative supported by a national delegation composed of advisors and officials who represent their country on different NATO committees. Again, it's going to be, I don't know yet who is going to be the, the top players, especially in what's going on currently, but I thought it would be nice to highlight that the permanent representative of the U.S. to NATO is Julianne Smith. Yes, get it. Hearing and seeing from her, which I imagine we will. Great. Somebody we are uh, already hearing from, um, and I assume we'll continue to hear from, uh, is the NATO Secretary General. And the NATO Secretary General is the Alliance's top international civil servant. This person is responsible for steering the process of consultation and decision-making in the alliance and ensuring that decisions are implemented. The Secretary General is also NATO's chief spokesperson and the head of the organization's international staff. So this is effectively the figurehead of NATO. And the current figurehead, the current NATO Secretary General, is Jens Stoltenberg. And... 
he has been giving many speeches in the last 10 hours. <laughs> it's been very, very busy. Very busy. Today. As all good uh, alliances, there is a headquarters. So NATO headquarters uh, is the political and administrative center of the alliance. It is located at Boulevard Leopold III in Brussels, Belgium. It offers a venue for representatives and experts from all member countries to consult on a continuing basis, which is a key part of the alliance's consensual decision-making process, and to work with partner countries, so to work with people who are, you know, not in the alliance, but friends of the alliance. Mm -hmm. Roughly 4,000 people work at NATO headquarters on a full-time basis. Of these, some 2,000 are members of national delegations and supporting staff members of national military representatives to NATO. About 300 people work at the missions of NATO's partner countries, and some 1,000 are civilian members of the international staff. More than 5,000 meetings take place every year among NATO's bodies, including staff based at the headquarters, as well as scores of experts who travel to the site. So they they are active and busy. It's a big, it's like not a small thing. No. And it's not like they need a conflict in order to gather. They are always gathering. I mean, one would hope. You can't just, you know, be on vacation and then suddenly expect to be ready for Russia to invade Ukraine. Right. Right. Gotta be ready. Gotta be ready. Gotta be ready. So recent NATO involvement has been in Afghanistan. Following the 9-11 terrorist attacks against the United States, the International Security Assistance Force, ISAF, was established under the request of the Afghan authorities and a UN mandate in 2001. It was led by NATO from August 2003 to December 2014 and was succeeded on January 1st, 2015 by the Resolute Support Mission, which was terminated early September 2021. So involved in Afghanistan after the 9-11 mm-hmm. attacks. Mm-hmm. Similarly, they were involved in Iraq. NATO conducted a relatively small but important support operation in Iraq from 2004 to 2011, that consisted of training, mentoring, and assisting the Iraqi security forces. At the Istanbul summit in June 2004, the Allies rose above their differences and agreed to be part of the international effort to help Iraq establish effective and accountable security forces. The outcome was the creation of the NATO training mission in Iraq, which is great. I love that they're also like, are they're willing to intervene militarily, but they're also like, you know, teach a man to fish and he'll be able to fish for his right. life. Like right. you got to teach. Well, I mean, they, they've done a ton of, you know, modern day things that we would recognize. And a lot, a lot of it is diplomatic missions or, you know, uh, like military missions, but not combat based, right. Yeah, but training, a lot of training. That's so good. Really big on training at NATO. Great. Great. I love that. They were also involved in Libya following the popular uprising against the Gaddafi regime in Benghazi, Libya, in February 2011. God, that was 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. Can you believe? Are you, in- are you kidding ago? me? That is insane. I feel like it was yesterday. <laughs> 
So following the uprising against Gaddafi in 2011 in Libya, the UN Security Council adopted resolutions 1970 and 1973 in support of the Libyan people, quote, condemning the gross and systematic violation of human rights. The resolutions introduced active measures, including a no-fly zone, an arms embargo, so no guns or weapons, and the authorization for member countries acting as appropriate through regional organizations to take, quote, all necessary measures, close quote, to protect Libyan civilians. So a bit more, a bit more involved than training. I would say a bit more evolved, a bit more, you know, it's just like, I don't want to say aggressive because that's not the right word, but like a a much more strong stance and presence in what was going on in, in Libya and like really issuing some statements. Yeah. Um, Enforcing a no-fly zone is no joke. I mean, that's oh that's serious. And an arms and embargo. And an arms embargo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never? Like that's that's there those are big steps that require personnel and not necessarily combat, but right. require human capacity. Um, right. Well, it's also provocation. Yes. As well. 100%. Uh or some, you know, Aggressors can see it as provocation. Like oh, if we were absolutely. to do an arms embargo on Russia, that would be they would take that as an act of war in a oh, second. Yep. Absolutely. Other operations in recent NATO history include the counter piracy in the Gulf of Aden and off the horn of Africa. They assisted the African Union in Darfur, the situation in Sudan, Hurricane Katrina, and North Macedonia. So they're all over the board. They're all over the board. I just wanted to to give these examples to show that like they are active and have been active. I just don't think we've, you know, first of all, I don't think we've had access to information in this, uh, at this type of quickness Yeah. in, you know, any major military conflict before mm-hmm. like this. So I think that, you know, just highlighting that NATO's been involved for a long time. Yeah. And in various types of situations, in various types of ways, there's no one way to approach a humanitarian, military, act of war, aggression, civilian situation. They really take it as it comes. So let's do my favorite thing in the world, which are fun facts, fun facts, fun facts, fun facts, fun facts yes, about girl, it. NATO. Yeah, just some more kind of like quick points that I found super interesting that just didn't fit in into like the overall timeline and organization structure that we talked about before. Right. So first fun fact, the NATO headquarters were not always in Brussels, Belgium. So the original headquarters was in London. But then in 1952, the headquarters moved to central Paris. Hmm. In 1966, the headquarters moved to Brussels when France decided to pull out of the military command structure portion of NATO. So from, I think it was 1966 to I think like 1999. It was like a long time where France. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is a long time. Did not want to be a part of, you know, military engagement. They were still a part of NATO and part of diplomatic relations, but not um, providing any military assistance. NATO has an open-door policy with regard to enlargement. Any European country in a position to further the principles of the Washington Treaty and contribute to the security in the Euro-Atlantic area can become a member of the alliance at the invitation of the North Atlantic Council. 
There are two official languages of NATO, English and French, that which I find really surprise me. I mean, me either, but I just find it surprising, I guess. And, you know, a lot of these countries were admitted, you know, after its formation. Mm-hmm. But so many Eastern European countries yeah. and English and French are the two options. It's just surprising, I guess. Yeah. I bet everybody's wondering who pays for NATO? Who pays about for all ask. this? Uh, who, cha-ching, cha-ching. Involvement costs money. Alliances cost money. So NATO is an intergovernmental organization in which member nations allocate the resources needed to enable it to function on a day-to-day basis. There are three budgets, one civil and two military. Each NATO member country pays an amount into the budget based on an agreed cost-sharing formula. Taken together, these budgets represent less than half of 1% of the total defense budget expenditures of NATO countries. So anybody who's up in arms about the fact that we are paying NATO for defense or paying any type of defense for NATO, it is such a small amount in comparison to what we spend on our own country's defense budget. We are not in any way (laughs) cutting into our own resources to help support NATO. This is a fun fact. There is one member of NATO that does not have an army. Did you know this? The country is Iceland. Iceland does not have an army. I mean, part of me is like, wow, there's a country that doesn't have an I army. Know. But then I'm like, well, who the flip is going to invade Iceland? <laughs> like, who right. is Iceland going to fight? Like, themselves? I know. There's I like, know. It's, what? It's I just didn't, I, it never even occurred to me that you could be a country without an army, <laughs> like a military, this which is, is the Iceland's... most U.S. way of thinking. Right. I, that's probably the most United States sentence I've ever said. This is why, like, everybody and their mother from the East Coast has been going to Reykjavik for the last 10 years. Right. <laughs> like, no military here. Let's no military go. here. Party. Let's go it's our new It's getting a hot spring. <laughs> Next fun fact. There are 14 articles in the NATO treaty. I'm going to quote two that are currently relevant because they have been tossed around. The first one is Article 4. Article 4 actually has been invoked as of today. This is one of the notes that I had to add in after already doing these notes. Oh, my Lord. So Article 4 reads... The parties will consult together whenever, in the opinion of any of them, the territorial integrity, political independence, or security of any of the parties is threatened. So today, Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, and Slovakia triggered Article 4 in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So they're like, yes, yes, yes. Hey, (laughs) it's essentially Article 4 is like, I'm calling a meeting. I'm calling a meeting. Point of order. Point of order. Point of order. Everybody has to gather and everybody does have to gather. It's within their rights as members to invoke this article and say, we all need to get into a room right now. Yeah. Threats. Threats are around us. So that's what they're invoking. It truly just means that they want to have a discussion about what's going on. It is not what Article 5 is. Article 5 is the big article, the one we've been talking about, kind of what this whole treaty was built upon. And this is what Article 5 reads. 
the parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. And consequently, they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them, in exercise of the right individual or collective self-defense recognized by Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forthwith individually and in concert with the other parties, such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force to restore and maintain the security of North America. So you come for one of us, you come for all of us. If one of us is attacked, we all respond and potentially attack back. Yeah. This is the alliance. Like this is the this is the mission statement of the alliance. Article 5, the big, the big article, has been invoked only once in NATO's history on September 12th, 2001, the day after the 9/11 attacks on the US. So, that's pretty wild to think that, that like crazy. we've had so much of this conflict, but the only time that Article 5, again, like the big kahuna has been invoked is 9-11. And then finally, to kind of round us out of fun facts, to round us out on this topic of NATO, I wanted to end with Russia's involvement in NATO because Russia is a part of NATO, but it's complicated. <laughs> you don't say. And again, this I mean this this could this could change. Who knows? Who knows if this will still stand? I don't I don't know how you no longer become a member of NATO. But here is the quick history. NATO-Russia relations started after the end of the Cold War when Russia joined the North Atlantic Cooperation Council in 1991 and the Partnership for Peace program in 1994. So Cold War ends, Russia's like, I am willing, let's all get along. Let's all get along. I love the peace. I love the peace. I love the cooperation. The two sides made a reciprocal commitment to work together to build a stable, secure, and undivided continent on the basis of partnership and common interest in 1997, which is the year that it's kind of weird their involvement in NATO because it's not like Russia as we know it was invited in and approved to become a member of NATO. So it's like, and that's something that's being talked about right now is the legitimacy of Russia's seat in NATO and if they should be expelled. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think at this point it's like, honey, <laughs> we oh. told you not to. Finally, practical cooperation has been suspended since 2014 in response to Russia's illegal and illegitimate annexation of Crimea. Political and military channels of communication remain open, obviously, this has not been updated since last night when Ooh. for us the invasion started. So we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah, literally as of yesterday, they were still a part of NATO and there were still diplomatic efforts underway. But God knows what's going to shake out with Russia and NATO moving forward. Um, NATO has condemned what's happening, obviously, um, and is providing... Support to the border, you know, to Ukraine itself, not militarily, but like resource wise, there's sanctions, a lot of sanctions. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, if if this conflict extends beyond Ukraine and into a NATO territory, then we're going to be seeing a lot of NATO, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, we will see how this shakes out. Obviously, what's happening in Ukraine personally, I think, is really horrible. And I feel like we most all of us are probably in agreement on that. Um, So I hope I don't know. It's really hard to think of resolutions coming swiftly in these instances, but yeah. you you really don't want to see this go much further. Nope. So I hope whatever happens is done with, you know, not a lot, not a ton of human civilian life loss. And there already is that happening in Ukraine. So yeah. That is the end of our NATO episode. I'm sure we will do more relevant episodes as things unfold and we realize, oh my God, we should probably talk about this. But in the meantime, we love you so, so much. And if you like what you heard, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Get Civical. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to us. We love you so, so much, and we will see you next Wednesday. Goodbye.